0: Good morning. Many aspects of life involve sort of fundamental principles that we have to learn in order to make our way through this world. And I'd like to think about one of those for a few minutes. It's just the principle that is often called sowing and reaping. It comes from the realm of agriculture, obviously. And uh, the Bible states the principle in this way you reap what you sow. When a farmer plants his crops, he or she knows that what they plant in the ground is going to determine what they get out of the ground. So if you plant tomato seeds, you're not going to reap cucumbers, you're going to reap tomatoes. And if you put little shriveled up seeds of corn in the ground, you're going to produce stalks with ears of corn on it and so forth. That's the basic idea. But the principle means more than that. It's more than just what you put in the ground determines what you get out. But what you do with it is going to determine uh, the kind of crop you get. So if you plant your seeds in the ground, then you go off and go fishing for a few weeks and don't pay any attention to them. You don't water them and pull out the weeds that can choke the plants and deal with the pests and things like that. Well, then you may get a crop, but the crop will be very substandard because you sow. You reap what you sow. Now, the basic point obviously has to do with more than agriculture, and it's that what you put into life determines to a great extent what you get out of life as a result of that. And we all know that's true, don't we? You know, if you're a friendly person, you'll find that you have friends. If you're not a friendly person, you'll find that you do not have many friends. If you carefully save money for retirement, when the time comes, you can retire with some degree of assurance that you're going to have what you need to live on. If you don't, you'll probably be working into your old age at a job where you're saying, Do you want fries with that to to people? You know, if you never exercise, you eat whatever you want, whenever you want it, you're probably not going to be very healthy in life and so on. I mean it's just a basic principle. You reap what you sow in life. And it's virtually certain that as you go through this world, you're going to have to deal with that principle because it's kind of built into all kinds of things. Not just health and friendship and finances, but also business practices and personal relationships and recreation choices and all kinds of things. If you're a parent, you know, whether or not you phrase it this way, you're dealing with this all the time with your children, helping them to learn that in life you reap what you sow. Now, this principle is so much a part of life that we all seem to figure uh, that it, it must apply to relationship with God as well. After all, we reap what we sow in relationship with our employees, employers to our spouses, teachers parents, government, all kinds of areas. And so we figure the same must be true when it comes to relationship with God. And when we apply it to that, here's how we tend to think. We figure God is the moral governor of the universe. He's given basic uh, uh, rules for how we ought to live. And if we obey those rules that he has set up to make life function then we're going to experience God's favor in life, and we hope that when we die, we'll be in his presence, and if we flagrantly violate them, then we will experience God's displeasure now, and in the future, we won't find the door of heaven open. So think of Mother Teresa. We're sure she followed those basic rules of behavior which God has set up. She was selflessly giving to people. She was unconcerned with mere appearance. She was uncompromising with evil. And on the other hand, you can think of Saddam Hussein, who chose to live in ways contrary to what God desires from people. He didn't care for others. He was focused on himself and his pleasure only. And he was basically evil in his view of people and how to use them to get what he wanted. So what When you think of those two people, it could be simpler than to conclude that when Mother Teresa died, God opened the door of heaven because she had done the right things. And on the other hand, when Saddam Hussein died, that door was closed because we all know that you reap what you sow, don't we? Well, not so fast, not so fast. Sowing and reaping is a very important principle of life. It's one that we are required to follow in all kinds of areas. But while it's a very secure and certain principle of life in many different areas, when it comes to relationship with God, it doesn't seem to apply the same way. At least God tells us that he doesn't work on that basis. And one of the places where the Bible tells us that is in the passage that was just read to us. It's not so clear in the Bible that sowing and reaping applies to relationship with God and how God deals with human beings. It's not so clear that if you do right, God accepts you, and if you do wrong, God rejects you. And that's what this passage is about. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now let's take a few minutes and kind of take apart those two verses and See what God says through them about how he deals with human beings. These verses say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And for many people, the, the real question is, what does this word saved mean? When I was growing up, I, I remember hearing, I guess, people on TV talk like that. And I thought it was just some word that Christians used that was kind of funny. But... All the word means, saved, is to rescue or deliver. And so in this case, it's talking about God delivering us from something specific, and it's the penalty and the power of sin. By grace, you have been saved from sin is the basic idea. And sin refers to the things that we do wrong, the way that we at times think or treat other people or speak to other people. And the Bible tells us that all of us sin in various ways as we go through life. We mistreat people consciously and unconsciously at times as we go through life. We speak in ways that we shouldn't become angry when we shouldn't. We do things that we shouldn't. And, and uh, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What we receive as a result of our sin is death. And it's important to stop and ask, well, if we're saved from sin and, and sin leads to death, what exactly is this death that the Bible speaks of? We have a very clear idea ourselves that death is just physical death. But the Bible starts at a different point. It says that death basically is a separation. That's the basic meaning of the word. It's separation of an individual from God. That's how it's pictured when it first appears in the Bible. It's the separation of the soul from God. God is separate from us, not Physically, but morally or spiritually, there's this distance between us because of our sin and God's holiness. But death is also then what we usually think of physical. And physical also is a separation. It's pictured as a separation of the soul from the body. So that the body is left as a lifeless corpse while the soul goes on. And that's usually what we're thinking of when we think of death. But the Bible says there's a third kind of death. It's what it calls eternal death. And eternal death is if this separation of the individual from God at the point of physical death has not been resolved in some way. There's still this distance. That distance between the sinful person and God goes on for eternity. And that's what the Bible calls hell. So death is ultimately spiritual separation from God. Then it's physical death, separation of the soul and the body, and then it's eternal separation from God. And that's what the Bible says we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from the penalty for sin and the power of sin as we experience it in this life. And it says in the passage that the way that God does that in people's lives is by grace. That's the second question. What exactly is this grace? Most people confuse grace with mercy um, but there are actually two different things. Mercy is not giving someone something they deserve, whereas grace is giving to someone something they don't deserve. So it's like this. If a student cheats on a test and the teacher, rather than uh, failing them for the whole course, gives them a zero on the test but allows them to stay in the class, that's mercy, not giving them what they deserve. Or if a man flubs a job he's been assigned by his employer and his employer chooses to overlook it and continue to work with the man or allow the man to work for him, that's mercy. Grace is more than mercy. Grace is giving a person something they don't deserve. So grace would be like if um, a student cheats on a test and the teacher gives him a few more days to study and then lets him take the test again, that's grace. Or a man flubs a job for his employer. Instead of firing him, his employer gives him a new job with more responsibilities and more pay. That's grace. Or government, some of you might uh, be thinking. (laughs) Grace is not the way God intends the whole world to be governed, at least not at the present time. For example, there was a woman who turned herself into the police in 1993 named Catherine Ann Power, She had uh, driven the getaway car in a robbery in which a person was killed in 1970. And she lived for 23 years uh, free from the law. uh, and, And during that time, she started a business. She lived an exemplary life. And I don't know why it was. At the end of that period, she felt convicted about what she had done. And she turned herself in. The judge sided with the widow who was left to raise five children alone? That Catherine Ann Power's exemplary life did not absolve her from the responsibility that she bore for the crime that she had committed. And we don't govern society based on grace. She went to prison for eight to 12 years. We don't govern society based on grace, though at times mercy is an appropriate response in some occasions. But this verse tells us that grace is the only basis on which God deals with human beings. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. In fact, in the verse, he underscores it in three different ways so that we'll understand what he means by this this statement. The first is that salvation, if you look at the passage, is through faith. Um, By grace, you've been saved through faith. Now, faith is simply trust in God, trusting God and his grace, that he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, restore you to relationship with himself. It's based on, in the passage, the death of Jesus Christ, Christ's blood on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. Faith has no value in and of itself. It doesn't say in the passage we're saved by faith, as though God looks at our faith and he says, well, that's that's enough, a person has done enough in terms of their real belief in me. Uh, That's not what it is. It says that we're saved by grace, through faith. Faith is simply the means by which we receive the gift. It's the hand that reaches out and receives the gift of eternal life. And so, secondly, he says not only is salvation through faith, but he says, to underline it again, salvation is a gift. And this is not your own doing, he says. It is a gift of God. There are only two ways of acquiring anything in this world legitimately. You can either earn it or you can receive it as a gift. You can either earn and purchase it in some way by your work, by your money, whatever it is you give, or you can receive it as a gift. And either salvation must be something we earn or it must be something we receive as a gift. And this passage says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's free. And lastly, it says in the same verses that salvation is not of works. So that we don't miss it. He doesn't only say it's a gift. He says not as a result of works so that no one can boast. In other words, God doesn't take account of our good behavior, our good character, and say, okay, you've done enough. I will now accept you because you're such a good person. It doesn't work that way. It's not on the basis of works. It's not on the basis of our moral attitude or our behavior. None of that will ever bring us into a relationship with God, this verse says. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God does not deal with us according to the basic pattern of life, one that is so important, so essential to how we live our lives in this world. And it colors how we experience our spouse, our children, our employers, Everything we do in life is at least colored to varying degrees by the idea that you reap what you sow as you go through life. But the problem when we apply that to relationship with God is that the Bible says what we sow is sin, and what we reap is death. So if God dealt with us based on that principle, we wouldn't have much hope. So God, we are told, deals with us on the basis of a different principle, and that principle is grace, Salvation, forgiveness, peace with God, a cleansed heart. Now the power to live differently are, according to this verse, based on grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by human works of any kind. That's the entire burden of the Christian message that we celebrate on the day when we remember <coughs> Excuse me, that Christ rose from the dead. God doesn't accept people because they do the right things. God accepts people based on his grace. And here's what that means. What that means is that some religious folk who are moral and good and upright and they're kind and they engage in religious and charitable activities, but they trust in their own goodness, they trust in their behavior that someday when they stand before God, he will accept them because of their goodness that they are going to stand before him and hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it means that on the other hand, there are people, thieves, murderers, prostitutes, irreligious scoundrels, who have lived their lives far from God, who in life turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and his blood. They're going to find the door of of heaven open when they die. And that's quite a message. So this morning I want to ask you: do you really believe that? I mean, can you can you believe this? Can you really accept that salvation from the penalty and the power of sin is really by grace through faith in Christ alone? So let's paint the picture as starkly as we can. Take on the one hand a man named Ted Bundy. Many of you have heard of him. He was a serial rapist and murderer who was put to death at the end of the uh, last century. He twisted and used the system for years. He escaped from jail twice in the process of him being eventually apprehended. He was finally convicted of several gruesome murders, after which, when he was given the death penalty, he confessed to having killed over 30 women in several different states over a long period of time. In his imprisonment, before he was put to death, he said that he came to trust in Christ and he found in the blood of Christ forgiveness of his sins. Now remember that those victims could have been your mother, your sister, your wife, your daughter. Do you really believe that a person who committed those kind of crimes could have gone to heaven when he died through faith in Christ while a morally upright, giving person? who trusted in himself and his own good works to bring him to God, is going to be cast out forever. You might think to yourself, well, you know, Ted Bundy didn't mean it. He couldn't have meant it. He was just scamming the system one more time. And you might be right. I don't have any idea. But I want you to remember the story. Jesus, when he died on the cross, next to him was crucified a thief. The thief begged Jesus for forgiveness. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus knew that man's heart. We don't know Ted Bundy's heart, but he knew that man's heart. And and what it meant for that man was instantaneous, complete forgiveness of all the crimes for which he was justly hanging on a cross at that point. Can you accept that that could have been true of Ted Bundy? Well, I believe that you can. and In fact, the reasons come from this passage. I believe that you must understand and accept that, I'd like to convince you of it today. There are are four reasons the passage says why salvation must be based on grace and not on a person's behavior or moral character. The first is because the human condition demands it. The human condition demands that salvation be by grace. The passage, if you have to have a Bible open, you can look at verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 2. It starts this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It says that our condition, from God's perspective, outside of grace, outside of something God would do in our lives, is described as dead in trespasses and sins. It means you were spiritually Unable to respond to God. It doesn't mean intellectually dead, morally dead, uh, or or relationally dead. Not at all. We were very much alive. But dead spiritually. No life between us and God. No line of communication. You were dead. And dead sinners cannot know God or make any move towards God, cannot lift their fingers to do one thing for God unless they have life. So apart from Christ, and the life that the passage says he would impart to a person, we are spiritually dead. And in that spiritual condition, there's nothing we can do. And that's why salvation must be by grace. It can't be on the basis of our behavior. So first of all, it's because of our nature. And secondly, the passage says the nature of God demands that it be by grace. So it goes on, verse 3, among whom we all once Lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath refers to our being subject to God's just anger against sin, because God is just, and God must uphold his justice. He's holy and perfect, and he created us to be upright, and we're not. That's one side of God's character, one important aspect, his eternal justice. But then it goes on, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And the other side is God's love. And these two things, his justice and his love, the Bible says, were somehow operating at the same time. How could God be just and uphold his government of the universe with creatures that he has created and given moral commands to that have violated them? How can he do that and at the same time show his love? Well, he did it by providing a substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ, who took our place, paid the penalty for our sins in our place. He had no sins of his own. And so when he died on the cross, he took the penalty for sin on himself in the place of guilty people. God is perfectly holy and therefore just. He's also perfectly loving and therefore longs for relationship with us. And those two things met at the cross. And it's because of God's very nature that salvation had to be based on something outside of ourselves. It had to be by grace on the basis of a substitute. The nature of God demands it. The third reason, the passage says, is that the nature of morality demands that salvation be by grace. So the passage ends, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Truly good works have to flow out of a heart that has been cleansed. Since we are spiritually dead, we can't cleanse it ourselves. And we all know that once God cleanses the heart by faith, we are able then at least to seek to follow him and to rely upon him. And that gratitude that we feel is a much more powerful motivation than guilt or greed or fear. So becoming a Christian is not about doing something for God, doing enough that we hope he accepts us. It's the other way around. It's that first he accepts us because of Jesus and what he did. Then he cleanses our heart. And as a result of that, we're able to do those things that before we were unable to do. Our works could only flow out of his work and couldn't add to his work. And therefore salvation must be by grace. So it has to do with our nature, dead and sin, with God's nature, loving and just at the same time. And it has to do as well with the nature of morality. But the last thing, which doesn't really come from the passage, it's just a part of life, it's that the human heart desires it. We desire to be unconditionally loved. We deeply long for it. We can taste it at times in the best of relationships that we might think of But rooted in our heart is a longing that there would be someone who would accept us thoroughly based not not on our behavior, not on what we are, not on what we do for him, but out of grace. And that's why God tells us that salvation is by grace. In uncertain times, we should cling to those things God tells us. Unfortunately, It's important for us to understand that there are certain principles of life that are operative and they're incredibly important. One of those is that you reap what you sow. But if we seek to apply that to relationship with God, we're going to be disappointed. One of the things you can be certain of is that God will always be gracious to any person who comes to him through faith in Jesus Christ. That is his promise. A person who comes to him not relying on their own character, not relying on their own behavior, not thinking that something that they have done or thought or some religious exercises have somehow added to God's acceptance of them, but who sets all that aside and trusts in Christ to Christ alone. So I, I want to leave you with this question. Do you believe that? Do you believe it for yourself? Not do you believe it could be true for Ted Bundy, Or not do you you believe it for your parents or for your friend or for anyone else, but you believe it for yourself? Do you believe that your acceptance with God is tied up with something that was done by Jesus Christ on the cross, where he took your sins and he died for them? Do you recognize that your own goodness and moral behavior and good attitudes can never bring you to God? That there's not one ounce that you can add to the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure that many of you do. Perhaps most of you here who are coming this morning. That's why you're coming to worship. You can look back on your own lives, you can see the failings of your life, whatever they might be, and you you know that God has forgiven those things. You rejoice to know that it says in the Bible, as far as the East is from the west, so far as God removed our transgressions from us. As you go through life, you might still have times when you struggle with that. Things come up that you, you think about in terms of your past, but then you're reminded it's not based on me, it's based on what Jesus did. And you rejoice in that. But for some of you, that's not yet your experience. You know this is true, and you need to apply it to yourself. You understand that salvation, life with God, can can only be by grace. There's no other basis on which God could accept sinners. And you need to trust in Christ. You have stains in your life that you could never remove. No matter how many good things you do, those stains would not go away. You will carry them with you. They will become part of the good and the bad that make up your life like it does for every person. But... You can know that God, though he is holy and though he hates sin, he sent his son, the G- Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sins so that he might free us from those things forever. You know that Christ is God's only savior, the son who died and rose again. He now offers you his grace. And I, I call you to trust in him. Trust in him. Believe his promise. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone should boast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals to us things that we couldn't figure out on our own. As we go through life and we learn the principle of sowing and reaping in so many different ways, we assume that it must apply to how we relate to you, and yet you tell us that you act Because of our nature and your nature, you act on a different principle, the principle of grace. You call us to turn from sin and to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that this morning you would, even now, open the hearts of all who hear this word that they might find the full assurance of faith, of forgiveness, and of peace with you through faith in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you.